I'd like to introduce Alice O'Leary Randall. We'd like to thank her very much for giving her time today. Um, and she flew in from America yesterday and then drove up through that storm. She wasn't worried about getting um, the plane land in. I, I thought we were going to go off the freeway, though. It's the worst storm I've ever driven through. So it got rid of the jet lag for her. She was a near-death experience will do that for you. And that, that's just my driving without the, the storm. Uh, Alice, uh, I, I first met Alice at one of Lucy's uh, symposiums uh, and got talking to her. Uh, Alice is a senior spokesperson for the medical marijuana movement, co-founded in 1976 with her late husband, Robert C. Randall, who was the first person in the United States to legally receive medical marijuana. Following her husband's untimely death in 2001, Alice took a well-earned break from the front lines of the medical marijuana movement and embarked on a nursing career. Following her retirement in 2012, Alice has returned to the medical cannabis issues to educate and celebrate the contributions of many brave individuals who courageously fought for medical access to cannabis. So to hear from the experience of America, please join me in welcoming Alice O'Leary Randall. Hello, everyone. What a welcome, what a wonderful thing it is to be here. Um, such a wonderfully packed room, my word. Um, before I get into my presentation, um, I wanted to go over a couple, couple of little housekeeping things on your, on your table. At lunch, you would have found um, this uh, Mary's Primer. Uh, I'm the editor of this particular publication. It's published by Mary's Medicinals uh, out of Denver, Colorado. Um, this is a, a project that I suggested to them because I felt there was not enough um, basic information on cannabis. You can, if you're a patient, you can go online, you can Google it, and you come up with about 233 trillion hits or something like that. I mean, it's, it's obscene, isn't it? Uh, the, the internet has just become overwhelmed with information and most of it is ad advertisements. So it becomes daunting for somebody who um, is simply looking for basic information. And so I, I came up with the concept of going back to the old-fashioned children's primers. And uh, this is the fifth issue we've put out. Each one focuses on one particular aspect of cannabis. Uh, we usually put in patient stories, some research, some history, uh, list of additional resources, and um, they've been quite a hit. Uh, we've taken the first four and put them into a collection called uh, Mary's Cannabis Primers Collection. Uh, this is available through Amazon. Uh, I did have a friend order it who lives here in, in Australia. In, in the U.S., we, we charge $6.95 for it. She ended up paying something like $18 Aussie dollars for it, which I thought was a ridiculous markup. So I'm really looking for, um, for somebody um, in Australia to help us uh, disseminate this basic information. Um, also at Mary's, I, um, this is a, a new idea that we're doing this year where we, I attend conferences and then write up uh, the presentations at the conferences and present, this is Mary's prime time. Uh, and so it's a, a in occasional uh, newsletter, is what I call it. Um, and um, this, this is the third issue that we have. Uh, all of these are available online at www, 
marys.pubs.com. And the primers are actually downloadable. Um, and uh, so all of that information is available to you, uh, at least um, on internet form. And uh, we're, we're going to see what we can do about getting hard copy form, because there's just something about print, isn't there? It, it's, um, it's just lovely to have it, to be able to mark notes on it and scribble and underline and all of that. So, so I wanted you to be aware of those things. Uh, Mary's Medicinals is, a, um, is my sponsor. I've been working with them now since 2015. Um, they're a quality uh, company. They make quality products. Uh, and I'm, needless to say, I'm very happy for their support. Um, and I'm very happy to be working for such a, a terrific company that feels that education is a very important aspect uh, of this issue. Um, also, I'm a former board member for the American Cannabis Nurses Association. Um, and uh, we are about 1,000 members strong in the US at this point. Uh, and that's pretty phenomenal because in 2014 there were less than 200. So we're, we're growing rather rapidly. Um, there are some brochures on, on the back table there where you'll pick up your certificate. Um, and you can learn a bit about the American Cannabis Nurses Society. I hope that one day there'll be an Australian Cannabis Nurses Society. Uh, and that maybe you'll invite me back to speak. So. <laughs> So, um, as Rita said, I've been involved in this issue for a very long time, and looking around this room, I realize I've been involved in this issue for longer than most of you have been alive, um, which is always very sobering, um, because I still feel like the young girl that you're going to see in, in some of these pictures. Um, in 1975, uh, my husband and I were enlisted into this movement the old-fashioned way we got busted. Um, <laughs> Um, but if you think about 1975, uh, quite frankly, there wasn't much on the radar about medical marijuana, as it was called then. Uh, in fact, I had a call from a lexographer a few years ago, um, and he had traced things back, um, and he could not find the term medical marijuana uh, before my husband's case. Um, so it was, it was my husband's case that actually, uh, it was my husband who actually coined the phrase medical <coughs> marijuana. Um, it was the mid-1970s. Um, medical marijuana did not exist uh, anywhere. Not in America, um, not in Australia, uh, nowhere. Um, the federal government had done a really excellent job, my federal government had done a really excellent job of flushing any information, any historical references to cannabis as medicine uh, down what Aldous, um, uh, what George Orwell called the, uh, the memory hole. Uh, it was an inconvenient truth, and so they decided to get rid of it. Uh, Ju um, Justin uh, referred to uh, Mr. Harry Onslinger, um, who was a remarkable man in his own right, but he, he did a phenomenal job of erasing the concept of cannabis as medicine uh, from the memory of America, and, and basically from the world. Um, we have to remember that uh, cannabis and mankind have really walked together, hand in hand, as you will, um, for tens of thousands of years. It's the last 80 years that have been the anomaly in terms of cannabis's history. And it's an unfortunate anomaly because a good many people um, have, have suffered needlessly because we stopped the research process uh, in the early 1940s. It, it's really a sin. Um, so, 
Um, this is Robert and I in 1972. I like to call this picture our salad days picture. Um, we were young, we were very in love, um, and this was about six months after Robert had been diagnosed with glaucoma. Now we were 24 years old at the time, and the thinking at that point was that um, young people didn't get glaucoma. Only old people got glaucoma. So even though Robert exhibited symptoms for glaucoma very early on, um, he, he was diagnosed as having eye strain and was told not to, uh, don't read so much, young man. Um, get out, run around, have a good time. Um, but he finally found a good ophthalmologist who did diagnose him as having glaucoma, and it was so advanced at that point um, that the doctor told him he had um, about five years of sight remaining, which is pretty daunting when you're 24 years old. He discovered quite accidentally that marijuana helped his vision, and after we were... Uh, <laughs> ah, okay. Um, after... Um, well, you know, it's the old-fashioned way. We, we were recreating, and he thought, well, I can see better. Um, and he could, but he methodically proved it to himself uh, before he really told me. And when he told me, I said, oh, yeah, right, sure. Mm -hmm. Okay, but then he proved it to me. And, you know, in retrospect, I've realized that we spent the next 20 and 40 years proving it to others. That was our job. We were plucked out of whatever from, uh, from all the other people to, to do that, and Robert was uniquely trained to do that. Uh, his undergraduate degree was in rhetoric, uh, sorry, his undergraduate degree was in speech and debate. His graduate degree was in rhetoric, which is the art of public persuasion. And so I'm not sure that, that the fates could have found a better individual to say, okay, Robert, go out there and, and tell the world again about cannabis. Um, it, it got to the point where officials from, from our federal government would not appear at conferences or on news shows or TV shows with, with Robert because he just sort of cut them to shreds. And um, so he was, um, he was a wonderfully articulate man. And uh, when, we, when he got, finally got access to marijuana in November of 1976 after a rather lengthy petitioning process through the federal government, um, it became big news. This is my favorite headline from the time. Bob smokes pot and it's legal. Okay. Um, and this is just one sample of thousands of headlines. And uh, it wasn't the age yet of 24-7 news, uh, but nevertheless, he was on all the major news shows at the time. Um, he, uh, it, newspapers, radio shows, it was big news. Um, but one interesting thing uh, that I think is important for all of you to know is that it wasn't in America that heard first about Robert Randall, it was actually here in Australia. This is an article from the Melbourne Age, April 1976, written by Creighton Burns, who went on to become the editor of The Age. And um, I was working for Creighton at the time as a research associate. And of course, I told him about our situation. He was intrigued. And he, uh, he wrote this article, and it appeared um, several months Robert received the marijuana in November of 76. This was in April. So several months before anyone in the globe heard about it, Australia heard it first. So that has always given me a, a warm spot in my heart for Australia. Um, so that's, that's, that's that story. You heard it here first. So moving on. Um, Robert had many accomplishments. He was the first legal marijuana smoker. He was the first to establish the concept of medical necessity, which is the, the judge found in our case that the, the 
problem that he was addressing with using marijuana was worse than the crime that he was committing. And that's the concept of necessity. And so that was the first successful use of medical necessity, even though uh, necessity is a very old concept in common law. He is the acknowledged founder of the medical marijuana movement, and he devoted 25 years of his life uh, to fighting for laws, law, changing of laws. And um, the court case that Justin um, mentioned where Francis Young found that, um, that marijuana was safe, uh, it was my husband who led that court case. So he was quite a remarkable man. He accomplished quite a bit. Um, and it was, it was my honor to, to be his partner in all of that. Um, but, you know, this, this conference today is about debunking some, some myths about medical cannabis. And one of the ones that I, I wanted to debunk was the concept that um, the mar medical marijuana movie, movement began in 1996 in California, with that being the first state law uh, that was passed. In fact, in the late 70s and early 1980s, Robert and I, along with patients throughout the U.S., were able to um, pass 34 state laws. The interesting thing about these laws is that they, they ordered the departments of health to establish statewide programs of research using federal supplies of marijuana. Now, these were 34 states. Think if those programs had been able to get up and away. Think of the research that we would have accumulated 30 years ago. It's, it's a crime. And, and once again, it was the federal government uh, that stepped in and obfuscated and blocked and stopped those programs from going forward. The basic problem was that they didn't have enough re marijuana to provide to all these research programs, but they wouldn't acknowledge that. Um, but they found many other excuses to come up with. And eventually, these programs forced the federal government to release much earlier, well, they never anticipated releasing the drug Marinol, also known as Dronabinol. Do you, you have that in, in, yes, you have that here in Australia, which of course is synthetic Delta 9 THC. And it was released through our uh, National Cancer Institute through their Group C program which suddenly made it available to tens of thousands of cancer patients. And the federal government uh, set, put out a press release at the time saying the pot pill, it does everything that smoking a marijuana cigarette would do. And the public was not very sophisticated in its knowledge of medical cannabis, so they thought, oh, well, that's great. I don't need to get that, that nasty old plant stuff. I'll just take this pill, and it'll stop me from, from vomiting. Well, of course, the very idea of taking a pill to stop you from vomiting has, has certain, I don't know, some problems, I think. Um, but um, nevertheless, the net effect of that release of Marinol uh, was that it took the wind out of the medical marijuana sales in, in the U.S. And uh, so it, it kind, of, um, kind of stopped our forward momentum for a while. But moving forward into the, um, into the 90s, um, marijuana had become, medical marijuana had become very important to the AIDS community. And so we established a program called the Marijuana AIDS Research Service. And we hoped that the federal government would allow AIDS patients to apply to the federal government and, and manage to get um, supplies of marijuana through the federal government to treat the symptoms of AIDS, vomiting, uh, weight loss. 
And um, there was a program at that time called a Compassionate Use Program. There were about 12 patients enrolled in it. My husband was one of them. Um, and we, we figured that this program could be expanded. AIDS patients could acquire the legal marijuana that they were looking for. And so we started the Marijuana AIDS Research Service in order to prepare the forms um, that the doctor and the patient would have to fill out. Now prior to this time, our system in America sounded a lot like what Lucy described this morning. It was extremely convoluted, extremely difficult. Um, there was a stack of papers about like that that was sent to doctors, and they were told to fill them out. Well, a doctor doesn't have time to even look through the packet of papers much less fill them out. And they were told that they had to fill in all kinds of data from, from, from uh, phase one research program, research studies. It, it, was just, it was just a ruse. It was to put them off. It was to put them off. So we, we took these forms and we, we shrunk them down to a very manageable size. The, the, the thing about AIDS was the symptomology was so routine throughout all of the patients that we could, we, could, we could streamline those forms and make it far easier for the doctors and the patients. They could, in fact, fill those in in about 20 minutes. And in most cases, it was the patient that filled them out and took them in and left them with the doctor, and the doctor looked at it, and he went, yeah, sure, okay. And there were hundreds, perhaps thousands, of forms sent to the federal government um, from AIDS patients and their doctors. And we knew that our federal government would have one of two reactions to this program. They would either finally embrace it and realize that marijuana has medical value and, and should be made available, and certainly the research should go forward, or they would shut the program down. Now, we can all guess what happened here. They shut the program down. They grandfathered in the 12 existing patients who were already receiving marijuana but no future patients would be allowed in. Now, the government really did not estimate, they underestimated, how sophisticated the public's knowledge of cannabis had become at that point. They thought they could get away with shutting down this program and not suffer any repercussions. Well, they were very wrong. There was, uh, there was an outrage across America about the treatment of AIDS patients uh, by our federal government relative to their request to have legal access to cannabis. And so these are just an example of some of the um, editorials from the time from all over the country uh, slamming the, the Bush One administration for closing these program down. And it was the closure of that program that led directly to the 1996 Proposition 215 in California. So that, that's another uh, myth that I want you to be aware of, that medical cannabis did not spring full-born um, in California in the mid-1990s. There was a lot of sweat, blood, and tears that came before the mid-90s in California. But California, to its credit, figured a way around the federal obfusc obfuscation that was ongoing. They took the matter to the people, and the law was passed, and the dispensaries were established, and a new medical marijuana movement was born in America. By keeping everything within the state, the federal government really had no, they had no power over it. 
They tried to. They shut down several dispensaries. They made life hell for a number of years. But the, again, the public's knowledge was becoming so sophisticated and so powerful. Uh, patients would no longer be denied. So our, in America now, we have, I think somebody this morning mentioned 31 states. Actually, there are only four states in the US at this point that don't have some form of a medical cannabis law. Now, in some states, those are um, just CBD-only laws, and there are no dispensaries. In other states, of course, like California and Colorado and, and many others, um, the cannabis is being grown, the dispensaries are thriving, and life is pretty good <laughs> for some of our medical cannabis patients, if you're lucky enough to live in the right zip code. Um, honestly, it, it's medical care by postal code in America at this point. If you're lucky enough to live in one state, uh, you can use cannabis. If not, well, um, you can move to a state that does, and I've certainly known many patients who have done so. Uh, or you can tough it out, if you will. Um, I, I, I get frustrated with our system in America because of that, because it's so geographically centric. And each state is different in terms of how it administers the law and how they provide cannabis to the patients. In fact, it's, it seems to me in, in my country at this point, we're trying, each state that passes a law is trying to be tougher than the one before. And so the access gets harder. And it, it's, I frankly would love to see the federal government take a more active role and, and stabilize, standardize the program. Provide prescriptive, true prescriptive access rather than, we don't, we don't have prescriptive access in these states, of course. We can't call it a prescription. It's recommendations. The doctors can recommend cannabis, okay? But they can't prescribe it. So there's those little silly things that make, kind of make me nuts. But then I come to Australia and I hear Lucy talk about the problems that are here. And I have to admit, I'm cast back about 30 years um, to a time in my country when things were extraordinarily different and, and very difficult for patients who needed cannabis to get a hold of it. I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll save you some math here. Um, I've been in this for 42, 43 years old, and I'm now 71 years old. And I find myself wondering if, if I'm going to live to see uh, a day in which cannabis is treated like any other medication. I've come to believe I won't, frankly. The stigma that was noted in this uh, excellent documentary that we saw, the stigma is still so strong. I, I, at one time in my life, I, I was I was formulating this theory that it, it's almost genetic in some people to hate cannabis. Um, that it's, it's ingrained in them. It's um, epigenetics, I believe it's called, where, where not only physical traits and whatnot are, are passed on, but also thought processes. That, that they they're using epigenetics now to explain some bigotries. And I think that the what we see in the opposition to cannabis is a bigotry. 
It's a botanical bigotry. And whether it's to protect a pharmaceutical company um, or I, I don't, or, or protect the power of bureaucracies, I, I don't know, I don't know how something so practical can be so opposed. And I cannot believe that there are people who have loved ones who could benefit from cannabis who will not use it, will not even consider using it because it's illegal. It's, that's beyond my comprehension. But it, it seems to be ingrained in us, thanks to people like Mr. Harry Onslinger. And it also dates back even to further than that. There are records from, I believe, the 1200s, wherein the Catholic Church talks about cannabis as kind of a demon weed. And so it's always gotten sort of a bad rap, and I'm not quite sure why. Um, but we're doing quite well, nevertheless. I mean, at least in America, we have millions, literally millions of people using cannabis in one form or another for medical purposes. And in Europe, there's been tremendous, tremendous progress. Canada, my neighbor to the north, um, has had a medical cannabis program for almost 20 years. And of course, just a couple of days ago, they legalized it uh, for adult use. But you might be surprised to learn that in Canada, the Canadian Medical Association, an association of doctors, has suggested to the federal government of Canada that now marijuana is legally available across the board, maybe we should close down that medical cannabis program. I'm serious. I'm serious. They have recommended that they close down the medical cannabis program. Because in their eyes, this is what I think anyway, I have no access to what they're thinking, but it, to them pot is pot. You know, they have not taken any time to really investigate what's going on here. There is a lack of intellectual curiosity that to me is absolutely criminal. How can all of this information about cannabis, about the medical uses of cannabis, swirling around the globe at this point, how can you not look at that and go, and be a doctor, and go, maybe I should look into this a little more? How can you learn even a smidgen about the endogenous cannabinoid system and not want to know more? It is the endogenous, the discovery of the endogenous cannabinoid system, which I really believe was one of the great discoveries of the 20, 20th century, we're in the 21st, the 20th century, unheralded discoveries of the 20th century, um, that has propelled medical cannabis movement as rapidly forward as it has gone. Because suddenly so many scientists around the globe could go, oh my gosh, now I understand why something that could cure migraines and glaucoma, well not cure, but help migraines and glaucoma, cancer, Crohn's disease, neuropathic pain, diabetes. You know, for years, in, especially in my federal government, they would just be disdainful of that. Well, no, no drug can do all of those things. This is just hippie hoax stuff, you know? Um, but with the discovery of the endogenous cannabinoid system, they could now go, oh, 
Well, we have receptors all over the place, so of course this could be useful. And yet, the doctors in Canada and my federal government and your federal government has chosen to turn its back on this remarkable physiological system that we have that is responsible for our homeostasis. How can you intellectually do that? I applaud each and every one of you for being here today because your curiosity has been piqued. You want to know what's up with this stuff. And you've got, prep, you've got patients coming in, probably, if it's like it is in America, probably every other one saying, where, where do I get some of that CBD? Right? Am I right? Could I see a show of hands of how many people have had a patient inquire about CBD? Yeah? Yeah, is that all? Oh, come on. Oh, how about THC? How about cannabis? Or marijuana? Okay, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the public, in some respects, is better educated than the doctors. And isn't that tragic? Yes. In my country, in Washington state, they've done the same thing as the Canadian medical, oh, by the way, the Canadian Nurses Association has said they believe the medical cannabis program should continue. Yeah, let's hear it for Canada. <laughs> this is why this is why everyone in this room is so important. The nurses know where it's at. The nurses are the front line. The doctors don't have time to listen to all the inquiries, but they'll ask you. You know, while you're taking their blood pressure and doing all that stuff that nurses do, they'll ask the questions. I have a very good friend in California who's an advanced registered nurse practitioner. She has a practice devoted only to cannabis, and she sees primarily elderly patients. In the past four years, she has seen 4,500 patients. Now she can, again, she cannot prescribe cannabis, but she can recommend it. And I honestly feel that this may be the hope and the future of medical cannabis is in this room, is in us nurses because we have the time to listen. I attended a conference in Vienna and listened to one doctor say, after two fascinating days of presentations, um, who stood up and said, I, I don't know how I can incorporate this into my practice. I do not have time to listen to all of these patients. <laughs> well, um, first of all, I don't know why he became a doctor if he doesn't have time to listen to the patients. And secondly, it's such fascinating stuff. There are, of course, many doctors who have embraced cannabis and they take the time to listen to their patients because it's in listening to the patients that you learn. And granted, cannabis is not a take two pills, see me in six months. It's not that kind of a drug. It needs tailoring. It's almost concierge medicine. And I've really, I've started to believe that there's going to emerge a specialization that's halfway between naturopaths and MDs that are the cannabis practitioners. And that's, but that, and that's what it's going to take eventually because it isn't the same as, as the pill doctors. 
Uh, and it's, it's, it's slightly naturopathic, but it, it's a little bit more advanced than that. But um, we need a specialization. And in my country, we have several doctors who are just at the forefront of advocating uh, the use of cannabis on a regular basis by their patients. I started to say in Washington State, they have done what the Canadian Medical Association uh, recommended. That is, they have um, folded their medical cannabis program, which I think was set up in the early 2000s, and they've closed that down, and they folded it into um, the recreational program, and um, they've, they've lumped it all under the Department of Tobacco and Alcohol. Now, would you want to be a patient and know that your regulatory body is the Department of Alcohol and Tobacco? I don't think so. Honestly, it makes me so sad because it shows how, how after 40 years, 43 years of effort on my part uh, and many years, Lucy and, and others around the world, I, like Lucy, I became quite emotional during that documentary. I never had the honor to know Dan, but I've known other Dans. I've known Lynn Pearson in New Mexico in 1978, 25 years old with testicular cancer, who spent the last good days of his life lobbying the New Mexico legislature to pass a law recognizing marijuana's medical value and establishing a statewide program of research. That was the first law in my country. And like Dan, Lynn didn't live long enough to see the true fruits of his, of his labor. And I could stand up here all afternoon and tell you about, about patients that I have known. And what has started to irritate me more than anything is that I see this cannabis industry exploding globally. I read about how it's going to be a $2 billion, $6 billion, $20 billion business around the world. An industry built on the backs of patients and we just seem to be forgetting about them. And I, I would honestly hope that each of you in this room takes away those images that we've seen from Lucy's presentation and Carol's and remembers the patients as you move forward and that you fight to keep a clean medical cannabis program once it gets up and running. <laughs> and it will. Patients will not be denied, but they can be beaten down pretty darn good. So please, remember the patients. Remember, you're the nurses. You're the ones who are supposed to listen. And try to help Australia move forward on this. I, I don't know what the answer is. I, I listened to Lucy this morning and, and felt so powerless. But then I think back to 1975, when there were two young people who just thought that we have all this cleaned up in about five years. <laughs> and uh, well, we missed that mark by a little bit. But you know, legal or illegal, it works. And we helped a lot of good people through some really bad times. And I think all of you can do the same. 
Please keep speaking the truth. Learn the truth. Learn, learn, learn. Get the primers. Download them. Basic information. Um, share it with your patients. Support United in Compassion. Because this is the future in this room. And I hope that 40 years from now, there isn't somebody up here. I hope it isn't you, Lucy. <laughs> I, I, I just hope that we're beyond all this in, in 40 years. I hope we're beyond all this in maybe the next five. Maybe we're right about the five years. We just missed the starting point. But anyway, thank you. Thank you for your attention. And um, I, I wish you all the best. And I thank you for your intellectual curiosity and your compassion. <laughs>